So we've been making our way through the book of Acts just at the beginning part of it. Uh, we finished chapter 1. We're making our way. We just broke into chapter 2 last week, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. Jesus having um, been resurrected, met with his disciples, coming and going, appearing, disappearing over the course of 40 days. They watch him ascend bodily into heaven and then they're told to wait for this promise of the Holy Spirit, also synonymous with the pouring out of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit, all those things you see sort of used interchangeably as we read the Word of God. So they've been gathered together, they've been waiting, uh, praying, uh, talking, uh, dreaming, and who knows what uh, else was happening in that upper room. They've selected a replacement for Judas. Uh, They've done that. And, and there they are waiting. And, and chapter 2, verse 1, I'll pick up. We, we did this last week, but we'll get a running start. Uh, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And so it's, uh, this is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost meaning 50th, 50 days after the uh, Passover celebration. This is the second of three major feasts that were required for the male the men of uh, the men Jews to come and be in Jerusalem for um, this one was the Feast of Pentecost in the summertime, beginning of summer, right around uh, the beginning of June is uh, approximately when this feast would occur. So they, so Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims, and the disciples are praying, and 120 of them, including some of the women, Mary, uh, Jesus's mother, was there. And then suddenly, verse two says, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so this had not, Jesus didn't tell them that this is what they should expect to see when the, the baptism with the Spirit occurred. Jesus had told them that that would happen, wait for the gift of the Father, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, uh, but he didn't tell them, and, and you're going to speak with tongues, and, and this is what, how it's going to go down. They didn't know that. They didn't expect that. And so the result, uh, what happens as they are filled with the Holy Spirit, what this brought on in their lives was this ability to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And pay close attention to that. We'll come back to that in just a second. So other tongues in Greek, heteros, glossa, heteros meaning other, or another of another kind, and glossa meaning a language, and so that they were able to speak with other languages. And uh, this is not something that they learned. Uh, Galilee was not known for schools of language, and um, it says as the Spirit, notice, as the Spirit gave them utterance. I've been in places and I've been around the church world for many years and have friends from all over the, the spectrum of denominations, and I remember meeting a couple, and I may have shared this story with you. That had told me uh, years ago, well, come to my house for dinner, we'll teach you how to speak in tongues. And I know this, even having this conversation, for some of you, just having this conversation today about this, these three words, speaking in tongues, already you've had an experience, or you've seen something, or you've rejected it, and already it's kind of making you uncomfortable. You know, and so that's why we're going through and letting the Word of God speak to you that, uh, so we can have a balanced understanding because I don't want the, the fake stuff either. This guy says to me, come to my house. We'll teach you how to speak in tongues. And, and I never went to his house. I ran the other way. So if anybody tells you they're going to teach you this, 
The Bible says that these are gifts from God, and he gives them severally as he wills. Do all have the gift of tongues? Do all have the gift of teaching? Do all prophesy? And the answer to all those questions in 1 Corinthians is no. But there's a body, and God gives out and doles out gifts, spiritual gifts, to people as they're needed to, to fulfill what God has called them to do, and that's to be witnesses with boldness. And in this case, in this situation, this had never happened before. This whole thing is, is, a, is an event in history that is sort of a pillar because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this event. I mean, they, they were filled with the Spirit. First time in history, in this way, a whole group, a, a mass of people, 120 people, all at the same time, filled with the Spirit. And the result of that being then speaking in heteros, glossa, or other languages that were going to be understood by the people that were there. They weren't speaking gibberish. They weren't speaking just repetitive sounds. And maybe you've been there. You've seen that. And, you know, I went through a period of my life where, and I still, I still want to be in that period of my life where I'm just seeking whatever the Lord has for me. Lord, if you've got something, you know, if there's a gift, the Bible tells me that I should desire Gifts. I should desire spiritual gifts. And we should because they're for ministry. They're not to build us up. They're not to draw attention to us. They're to draw attention to the Lord and to build others up. So whatever gift it is, whether it's the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or miracles or administrations or whatever it is, it's for the building up of the body. And, and it, it's not for, not for our personal you know, a lot of times you get into these people speak in tongues. And there's all these wacky things that happen, and, and it's just like a frenzy that's happening. And, and that's to be rejected. That kind of stuff is to be rejected. That's not spoken of in the Bible. It's not endorsed by God. But uh, people will call things, they'll label them whatever they want, and it doesn't mean that they're true. So I don't want fake stuff. And I went through a period just, as I was saying, speaking or wanting to, Lord, if, 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 I, if you want me to speak in tongues, Lord, now, I see it. It's in the Bible. And I see believers doing it in, in the book of Acts. And, Lord, if that's for me, then and I would, you know, get down on my, and I'd pray, Lord, you know, is this for me? And then I would just, I'd been told him, well, if you just start, just say a, a phrase. You know, you just repeat this phrase and then just keep repeating it. And eventually you'll speak in tongues. I'm like, no, that's not true. That's not the gift of the Spirit. So I'd pray. And, and, and I'll tell you the truth. As I sat there in my room, just by myself with my Bible open, going, Lord, is this something you have for me? All that would come to my mind is the word Shazam. I don't know why. That's a true story. Just, I just kept thinking, Shazam. I don't know why. where does that come from. I don't think that's from the Lord, but it's, it's a true story. Um, there are times in my life where God has allowed me to, to pray in that way, um, but it's not something I do regularly. And I don't want to, you know, if I sit here and I say, well, I speak in tongues or I pray in tongues, then that sort of then you say, well, pastor does it. Maybe we should do it. And there should be no pressure about these things. There should be no, there's no spiritual classifying, like if you do this, somehow you're a better Christian. Paul says speaking in tongues is the least of all the gifts. Prophesying. If you want to pray about something, if you want to desire a spiritual gift, Paul says desire to prophesy, to be able to speak to people about God. That's what you desire. But, you know, tongues is useful in its place and for its purpose. Um, So they're speaking with these other languages that they hadn't learned and uh, language is so cool anyway, because if you go to a foreign country and you hear people speaking in, a, in another language, it just sounds like gibberish. It sounds like, how can that possibly 
mean anything. So sometimes you hear someone speaking in tongues, maybe in church or in a prayer meeting, and you go, that sounds like gibberish. Well, a lot of foreign languages sound like gibberish to us, and we speak and they think that we speak gibberish. It's just a strange thing, isn't it? You know, there's 7,000 languages currently spoken on planet Earth, and uh, of those, many of them are spoken by less than 1,000 people. There's a lot of dialects, different places. But an interesting thing to pursue, if you like to pursue these kind of things, is the study of human linguistics and the fact that our language is so different than that of the animal world. Because currently, uh, evolutionary biology would love to class us with the animals. But we have this linguistic ability that still experts don't quite understand. For a long time, people felt like human beings were a blank slate, that our brains were a blank slate, and we learned, and we just evolved into this language. But now they're discovering that actually we were wired for the kind of language we have. Now you might say to me, well, pastor, I know dolphins communicate. I'm not arguing with you that there is communication and what experts would call communicative behavior in the animal world. But a dolphin is a long way from writing Psalm 23. Would you agree with me on that? We have almost infinite capacity for communication with our, with our language. And if you study languages all across the world, experts will say that although they sound radically different, and there are many different families of languages, but all the languages are basically only different in non-essentials. All language basically follows some certain sets of rules and things that, that are universal. And it's really pretty fascinating. And so you think back to the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, I think that is, and how God dispersed the, the languages. And, and now we have here the, the day of Pentecost and God then giving them the ability to speak in all these different languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And verse 5 says, they were, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. These were, these were Jewish men there for the, the feast. And they, these were people devoted to God from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So what they're recognizing is that this group of people, the 120 and even this group of 11 or uh, 12 at that point, then they've added the one to their ranks, Peter being at the forefront of them, they're all, they're Galileans. They're, they're from that region and Galileans were not known for their linguistic abilities. There was no school of languages in Galilee. They were known for their sort of southern draw, I guess you could say. Galilee was recognized to be sort of a, uh, a country area, you know, not a, not a cultural center and they had a certain accent that they used. And Peter, when he was trying to deny his relationship to Jesus, they recognized his accent. They say, you're a Galilean, aren't you? And he tried to deny knowing Jesus. So they recognized his accent. And, and the, the miraculous thing is, here's this group of people, untrained in languages, did not, they hadn't been to school and learned and become multilingual. They're not working for the UN or anything like that. But yet all of a sudden, as a group, they're speaking in all these different languages. And people that know those languages, that live in those countries where those languages are spoken, are going, we know exactly what they're saying. And when you travel, and if you travel, you can be walking down the street in a foreign country, a foreign city, and if you hear two people speaking English to each other, you catch it. You hear it. Your ear picks it up because, you know, you're, there's cars going by, there's people talking to each other, and all of a sudden you hear two people in English, and you're like, whoa, wait a second. We were in, a couple years ago, we were in Rotenburg, Germany. 
Our family had gone there to travel. It's one of the uh, oldest walled cities. Uh, still, the wall still remains around the city. It's just a really cool place. And so we're in Rotenburg, and I'm, you know, Helga and the kids are somewhere, and I had gone off to find something, and I don't know what I was doing. Uh, probably lost as usual. And, and I'm walking down the street, and I go past this little restaurant, little cafe, and there's, a, there's a, a family sitting at a table. And as I'm walking by, they're speaking English to each other. And I go, oh, cool. So I U-turn and go back over to introduce myself and find out where they're from. Well, I introduce myself, and it turns out the wife, is a husband, wife, and some kids, the wife knew my wife. They'd grown up together in, in Long Island. And they knew, I mean, what are the chances of that? It's crazy. But I heard them speaking the language and it stood out to me. And so as these people are listening to this, I mean, it's, it's such a, a confusion of languages that everyone notices it, but people are picking out their own language and, and recognizing that these people aren't from where we're from, but they're speaking our language. Verse 9 tells us a list, gives us a list of where these people are from, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene. Remember, remember Simon the Cyrenian? That's North Africa. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So just to summarize, rather than going through place by place, roughly speaking, we're talking about Jews that had traveled to Jerusalem from Northern Iran, Iraq, Turkey, uh, Egypt, we read that, North Africa. These are all the places that were represented by where these people had come from. And the individual languages, by the way, the word um, speaking in our own language or speaking in his own language, it's the Greek word dialectos, which is where we get dialect. They were speaking in their own dialect. So they were not gibbering and jabbering. They were speaking real known languages. And not only were they just speaking those languages, what were they saying? They weren't preaching to them. There was not a sermon being at, at this time. They were just speaking the wonderful works of God. They were celebrating God. And everybody was hearing that as they were saying that. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? And others, verse 13 says, mocking, said they are full of new wine. So some are saying, what is going on? I mean, what, this, is, this is outrageous. What is happening here? What could this mean? And others go, well, we know what it means. It means they're drunk. That's what it means. Well, Peter is going to take opportunity to explain this. And before I get into his sermon, I will mention that when miracles occur, when we talk about the miraculous, the spiritual, there are, uh, there's a large portion of our current culture that uh, denies the miraculous, denies the supernatural, denies anything that can't be seen or tested or touched or, or sensed. It doesn't exist to them. And so in the absence of a spiritual explanation for things, you need to come up with a naturalistic one. And that's all that this person that was mocking did is they came up with a naturalistic explanation for what was happening spiritually, even if it be a silly or preposterous naturalistic explanation. And I'll give you an example. First of all, from this passage, Peter's going to say, look, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. They had a tradition in Jerusalem during the feast that they would not eat or drink anything before nine o'clock in the morning. So to think that 120 people had 
corporately gotten sloshed against tradition before 9 a.m. is ridiculous. And Peter knows that, and they know that. But again, in the absence of the true explanation, you have to come up with something that explains it. And I go back to, and I often go back to, because I like you guys to know and to be informed about these things, I go back to the the evolution creation issue. You see, if we're going to write God out of our lives and out of the existence of our world, no one can argue with the fact that we're here. I mean, you can just look around you and we can all agree, we're here. Now, the question then is, why and how? And if we're not going to believe in God, we have to come up with some explanation as to why and how we're here. So we come up with premortal slime and lightning and life coming from non-life, which is against scientific law. The law of biogenesis says that life always comes from life. So to believe that at some point in history, hey, I I could believe it. I mean, I could say that you would call that a miracle. That at some point in history, all the naturalistic things were were suspended and there was this miracle where life came from non-life. I don't believe it. I believe that life always comes from life, just as we've always found. But at least the atheist or the, the person that believes in life coming forth without God would have to admit they believe in miracles because that's something that's not according to the law of biogenesis says that, which says that life always comes from life. What I like is the, science, the, the biblical explanation that says that in the beginning there was God. God is the originator of all life. He is the source of all life. He's the giver of all life, and he breathes life into the nostrils of Adam. And Adam becomes a living being. So that jives with my science, because my science says that you've got to have life to give life. can't give something you don't have. And so here's God, who by definition is life, and only he can give it. So to me, that's a great explanation. And because and we never see dead stuff give birth to live stuff. And we never see lightning cause things to come alive. Now, some of you had lightning strikes at your house and it caused a lot of things to blow up in your houses, like TV sets and computers and stuff like that. But we don't see the introduction of energy into a system causing life. They've never been able to reproduce it. Matter of fact, science fiction has messed with that idea and it's called Frankenstein. So the mockers will try to find explanation of things. Uh, I choose to go with the simple and obvious biblical explanation that in the beginning God God gave you life God gave me life he he formed me from my mother's womb he's the originator of life and people are you know it's father's day and I'm going to say this one quick thing Um, I tell when I meet people uh, that don't believe in God a lot of times I'll ask them um, I don't know you but I know you have parents I know you have a father well how do you know because you're alive because you exist no one exists without having a father. Whether the father's been in your life or not, you understand, biologically speaking, you are the proof of your father's existence. And I, and I say that to us today. We are looking for, people are looking for, ad- adopted children are oftentimes searching out their biological parents. There's this inner drive to find and hook up with their biological mother or father. And I think in every human being, there is that understanding that God is God that gave us life. And there is this search for that Father in our lives that is never satisfied until you find the living God. And it's in Him then you find rest and peace that you've been searching for. So that's a little Father's Day side note. Back to Peter's sermon, verse 14. 
So Peter answers this question. Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them. Now just stop right there for a second. Before we get into his sermon, do we remember what Peter we're talking about here? This is the Peter who had denied the Lord three times, who did not want to be associated with Jesus, who did not want to be connected with him, who, when a little servant girl, a teenage girl, confronted him, he cowered and denied knowing the Lord. But now, he's seen the resurrection. He's met with the living. He's been recommissioned by Jesus. And more importantly, he has been filled with the Spirit. And remember what, the, what Jesus said would be the result of that is you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you'll have boldness to be my witnesses. And so what we see standing up here is a very bold Peter. And so that's the, that's the result of the Spirit of God. He's been filled with the Spirit. So he stands up with the 11, and he raises his voice. He's not, you know, how many times have you had an opportunity to raise your voice for the Lord? You've sat in a meeting, or you've been in a class, and, and people have trashed Jesus or trashed Christians, and you just sat there quietly, and you, took, you were afraid to say anything. I love the boldness that Peter is showing. He could get killed for this sermon. That he's about, because he is, it's not going to be a soft sermon. He's no soft preacher here. But he stands up and he raises his voice. He's not had any formal preparation. He hasn't had a class on homiletics or hermeneutics or any of those things. He doesn't even have notes. He didn't have time to say, well, you know, guys, let me, I'll tell you what. Let's all convene tomorrow. I've got to go home. I've got to make some notes. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to look this over. And then I'll come back and I'll preach my sermon. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have notes. I'm just saying Peter didn't have any. And I'm saying from what I can tell, Jesus never had any either. And now, again, if, you, if, you ha- if, if you're called on to preach somewhere and, or teach a Bible study and you need notes, then have notes. But I remember hearing uh, one of the things that was inter- instrumental in my life. I heard a guy say, at a point in my life, I stopped preparing my sermons and started preparing myself. And so what we're going to see Peter do here is the combination of three things. He doesn't have to go, okay, guys, I need to go pray right now before I say anything. He'd already been praying. They'd been praying for the last 10 days as a group. Well, I need to go, I need to have a proof text. I need to have a, a text to work with. He didn't need to find a text. The Spirit gave him a text. He'd already been, been studying. They already were in the Word. They were appointing a new uh, a new apostle based on what the Word of God said. He's going to quote the Word of God three times in here. He quotes Joel chapter 3 from memory. He's not behind the eight ball going, wow, I better go get ready. He's already ready. He's been prayed up. He's been studied up. And then the third part, he's already been filled up. Sometimes in your life, you may be called on to, to say a few things and, and you're not going to have time to prepare. The key is to always be ready. Isn't that what the Bible tells you? Always be ready to give an answer. That comes from a lifetime of preparing yourself, of a daily devotional time, of a daily meeting with the Lord, of a daily prayer time. And then when someone wants to talk to you, you've already, you've already been thinking about it. You've already been reading the Bible. Sometimes I find that in my devotional time, that I just read this thing, and then I go to the soup kitchen, I go to wherever, I meet somebody, and the conversation goes, and it's right there to what I just read that morning. God's already prepared me for the, the meeting I'm going to have. And so that verse I read just comes right back. It's like, wow, the Lord already, I know exactly what I'm supposed to say. 
And that's how it was for Peter. He raises his voice, no formal education, no practice, no training, no buildings, no budget, and he just preaches. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Bold. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. He says, okay, let's handle the mockers first. You guys say these are all drunk. Let's just crumble that up and throw that out because we know that's not the reason. So he deals with that. And then he gets on to what is the reason? What are they seeing? He says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is, in, in some versions, if you have a King James, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is not something coming out of left field. This is not something that is just, you know, made up. Peter is saying, what you're seeing here is the result of the fulfillment of something that's been in Scripture all along. And I love this because eventually they go from the speaking in tongues. The whole point wasn't the speaking in tongues. That drew the crowd. That got people's attention, and now Peter is going to preach to them in a language they all understand. Maybe he was speaking Aramaic to them. They were all Jews. Maybe he was speaking Greek because of Alexander the Great. Many people spoke Greek all around the world. So we don't know what language he's speaking in, but now he's preaching to them in a, way that, in, in a language they all understand, and he goes back to say, this is what was spoken of. There's a lot of stuff that happens in and around the church that you can't go back to Scripture and say, this is why we do this. You know, we have some principles that we follow scripturally, like why don't we do foot washing, right? I mean, Jesus did it, right? Why do we do baptism and communion but not foot washing? Well, the general rule we tend to follow is if Jesus did it, so he did foot washing, then if it's practiced in the early church and it's taught about in the epistles, then that's what we do. So we see foot washing experienced by Jesus or, or done by Jesus and, and taught on by Jesus, but we don't really see this taught, done in the early church. We don't see it written out in the book of Acts anywhere where they, and they got together again and washed each other's feet. And then we don't see any exhortations from that in Paul's letters or James or Peter saying, now when you get together, make sure to wash one another's feet. So can you do the a foot washing thing? Would it be wrong? No, it wouldn't be wrong to do but we don't have it as our church practice because we can't put, point back to the Bible and say, this is that which is spoken of. This is, this is why we do this, because they did it in the early church or it was practice. So there, these are just some general ways we come to the church practice that we have. Baptism, you see it exemplified by Jesus. You see it taught on, and you see it in the book of Acts in the early church, and then you also see it taught on in the epistles. Communion, same thing. That's why we do those things, because we can be sure that these are part of what God has called us to do. So again, another little side note. Peter says, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from memory. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now, Peter could have stopped right there. And I'm going to stop right there. For just this moment, we'll continue on uh, in a second. But notice that uh, Peter quotes Joel and says, Joel says that when this thing happens, it's, it's that we're living in the last days. It shall come to pass when? In the last days. This is his proof text for what they're seeing, the filling of the Spirit. So by, by this estimate, we are living in the last days. The last days began 
when the Spirit was poured out. And it's been going on for 2,000 years. They had no idea how much time would span between the first few verses of Joel's prophecy and the last few verses. But Peter says, it's going to, uh, quoting Joel, it's going to come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That's different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament Spirit would be poured out on people for certain instances and in certain times for certain ministries. A great example, if you like to take notes, you can write down in your Bible uh, or next to this, 1 Samuel 10.6. 1 Samuel 10.6. This is the story of Saul, King Saul. You remember King Saul. It was predicted as he was becoming king that uh, he would meet up with some prophets, some young guys playing instruments, coming down from the mountains, and they'd be playing instruments and prophesying. And Saul would come along with them, and he would begin to prophesy too. And, uh, and then that's exactly what happens. It says the Spirit uh, of God came upon him, and he began to prophesy with these musicians. Now, I don't think they were predicting the future, these musicians, these musical prophets. I think they were celebrating God. I think they were just singing and, and praising the Lord. So prophecy sometimes can be predictive. Prophecy, just it's a combination of two words that mean to speak and before. So that can mean to speak before in terms of something that's going to happen in the future, to tell an event that's going to happen in a future time, to speak beforehand. Or it can just mean to speak before people, to speak in the presence of people, to praise the Lord. So Notice that in Joel's prophecy, it just says, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your, your young men shall see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Prophecy, there's no mention of speaking in tongues there. But there is a mention of prophecy. So I think when they were speaking with these other languages, that what were they saying? They were saying the wonderful works of God before all of those that were there in the crowd. They were speaking about God, celebrating God in the presence of all the people. Now, some of you know your Bibles pretty well. And you're going to say, well, Paul says that he who speaks in a tongue speaks to God and not to men. And, and I get that. Paul does say that in 1 Corinthians 14. And some will say that, you know, if someone shares a prophecy or someone shares a tongue and the interpretation of that is, well, he's saying that you all need to repent. That that's not really a tongue. Someone who speaks in tongue is speaking to God. So it would be more like a praise to God. But a prophecy is speaking to, to man when a person speaks to another person. So you know, I know all that's true and I understand that. I'm just telling you what I'm seeing here, what I see in the life of Saul. Um, he began to prophesy. We don't, we're not told he spoke in another language or anything like that. I think he just joined the group there and they were just singing and praising the Lord. That's my opinion. You can check it out. But the important thing here is, he says, I'll pour out my spirit on, and circle the word all, all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, when God says all, what does he mean? He means all. When they heard all, what were they thinking? They were thinking all Jewish flesh. Because we tend to be ethnocentric. Did you know that about yourself? You tend to be ethnocentric. You, you tend to see yourselves Americans. We're the center of the world. And that only we matter. You know, a lot of people think that way. Um, every culture has, a, has a, some of that in their culture, ethnocentrism. Um, you think you're higher than other cultures. And so they would, Jews, they thought they were the, the pinnacle. Surely God would put out his spirit on our flesh. But the Gentiles, they're going to have to work on that. God meant Gentiles. They just didn't understand that yet. 
Young men, visions, old men, dreaming dreams, maid servants, men servants, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And then he goes on. He could have stopped there, but he goes on. He says, I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So he continues on with his prophecy and he gets down to this section that sounds oddly familiar like we studied it during the Olivet Discourse. Maybe you remember Matthew 24, Mark chapter 13, these signs of the tribulation time, the time of the pouring out of the wrath of God, the time of Jacob's trouble, some would say. These are awesome signs. Now, you have to realize that this is, this is the time of God's judgment, And when he uses the word awesome, the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, we use the word awesome in a different way. We think, oh, that's awesome. That's cool. That's great. That's wow. Like that's how we use it. But awesome is something that inspires awe. And it's not always positive. It's oftentimes negative. Think about, and the best example I can give is is when you were watching TV the morning of September 11th. And you watched as the planes flew into the towers and you watched as the towers collapsed and we stood there and we were in awe, weren't we? We could not comprehend what our eyes were seeing. It seemed surreal. It seemed impossible. It seemed uh, overwhelming. And that's the idea of awe-inspiring, whether positive or negative. It's something that's so, it's so uh, miraculous, so, so magnificent, maybe in a negative way that it's hard to comprehend. And so this great and awesome day of the Lord, when, when the sun is turned into darkness and the moon into blood, I mean, what it is going to be an awesome day in sense of people watching that are going to be in awe, going, what is happening? What is going on? And it's the time of the judgment of God. So we live in this era called the last days of the church age from the pouring out of the Spirit up until the time of the... the um, uh, of the awesome day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord, this time of judgment. And, and now is a time where, where the Spirit of God is going out to all people, all flesh. And that's what he says next. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? What's Peter speaking of? Saved from this awesome day of the Lord. And those that he is speaking to are going to have reason to fear for their own lives. Because they have killed the Messiah. He's going to get to that. But whoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now when we say whoever, when God says whoever, we think God means whoever. And aren't we thankful because we're a bunch of whoever's. But when they heard whoever, they thought whoever of the Jews calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. Still not getting that when God said whoever, he meant whoever. He meant Jew and non-Jew. He meant Jew and pagan. And that, that's a great verse. Uh, let me put this, just one, make one side note. You're going to need this for later. We'll come back to it. Notice that Joel didn't say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord and is baptized shall be saved. Just make a note of that. We'll come back to it. So this is what Peter says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. And, and, his, and his sermon starts with the right word, starts with Jesus. The Holy Spirit was not pointing to himself. It was not about the signs. It was not about the wonders. It was not about an ecstatic experience. It was not like, oh, we just got to stay here and, and keep speaking in tongues. It was about Jesus. 
And so Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, and just stop right there, he starts with them in his sermon with things that are common knowledge. He doesn't try to stretch them right away. He's taking them down a road. The Spirit is leading him, and and he says, hey, we all know about this man, Jesus. He was attested by God because he did miracles, and he didn't do them in some far-off place. He did them right in your midst, and you saw him. You knew about it. You've seen what happened. And even Nicodemus said, said, no one can do these things except that God sends it. I mean, this is you can't be doing what you're doing, Jesus, and not be from God. So Nicodemus even knew he was from God. So he would start with this common knowledge and even says that, as you yourselves also know, you guys know this. Jesus did miracles and he was attested by God. Verse 23 says, but then him, that same Jesus who did the miracles in your midst, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus went to the cross not because of Pontius Pilate, not because of the Jews, but because it was the predetermined plan from eternity past. It was God predetermined, it says, his God's determined purpose and foreknowledge. The word foreknowledge, where we get our word prognosis, pro meaning beforehand, gnosis meaning to know something. Your doctor gives you a prognosis, it's a guess. You might live five years with that diagnosis, but then you live for 12. You know, whatever the case might be, it's a best guess. But he's telling you beforehand what to expect. When God has foreknowledge, it's because he's determined what's going to happen. See, God doesn't have to guess about the future. He determined it. So Jesus is a lamb slain, not from the time of the garden and the time of the fall, but from before the foundation of the world. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden, they eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit. Adam, uh, Eve eats it, gives it to her husband. They recognize their nakedness. Uh, they've been warned about spiritual death. And God doesn't go, Oy vey, what do I do now? You know, my perfect plan is ruined. Now I've got to come up with plan B. There was no plan B. It was always plan A. Jesus was going to be crucified. And God had determined this plan. But... At the same time, look at the next part. But you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified him and put him to death. So we've got this uh, dichotomy right here of God's sovereignty. God determined it would be so. But you also have man's free will. You, he's, he points the finger right at him. He says, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. He's not mincing words, is he here? He is pointing right at them and saying, you are guilty. You killed the Messiah. So were they just pawns in God's hands? Would they have said that somehow we felt this this moving, this pressure, and we couldn't resist it to crucify Jesus and to to sell him out to to the Romans? And they would have said they were acting completely on their free will, wouldn't they have? Just like you and I do. We do what we have our free will. We exercise. We make decisions. We we make choices. But yet somehow, behind all that was the foreknowledge and the predetermination of God. So God's sovereignty and man's free will doesn't set them, they're not excused from doing what they did. Peter says, you're guilty. Even though God said it was going to happen, he used you to do it according to your own free will. And that still involves you needing to repent. And that's what he's going to get to. 
So he deals with the crucifixion, then in verse 24 moves on to the resurrection, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So um, and he proves that, verse 25, for David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoices and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Notice that in, in Acts, it's verse 27, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So David, Peter's argument is going to be that David can't be speaking of himself there. Let's look at what Peter says. He gives us the interpretation. This, by the way, is Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Peter says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he says, can I just have a second to state the obvious? When David wrote this, he couldn't have meant, him, meant uh, to be about himself because he said, you'll not leave my soul in Hades, nor you will allow your holy one, holy one to see corruption. But David clearly has been buried, and, and he went to a place where all other human flesh goes. He, he became dust again. His body did. And so he says he couldn't have been, David couldn't have been talking about himself in that passage. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his own body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ or the Messiah, the promised one, to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. That's who this psalm is about. Not just David or not David at all. It's about Christ. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Remember when Jesus rose from the grave, there was no body. Because the wages of sin is death, but Jesus was sinless. So death couldn't hold him. So this predicted that although he would die bodily, he would raise bodily. And, this, and then he would set up an eternal kingdom, an eternal throne. The promise that's being referenced here is 2 Samuel seven twelve, what we call the Davidic covenant. David said, God, you dwell in a tent. You're, you're in the tabernacle, your presence. But I have this beautiful house and I feel kind of guilty about that. So I want to build you a house. And God said, David, I appreciate the sentiment, but I'll tell you what, I got a better idea. I'm going to build you a house. Not meaning a physical house, a literal house, but I'm going to build you a kingdom. And he says to them in 2 Samuel 7 that when you die, David, your seed, someone coming from your body, is going to be on the throne forever. Now, was, was Solomon on the throne forever? No. So who else could this be speaking of except Jesus, whose throne will be forever. And he proves that uh, in, in a few verses. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So he gets to the final answer of their question. What is this all about? What could this mean? How did this happen? And he answers them. When, and he says, uh, look at verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now he quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament reference in the New Testament is this passage. 
And the question is, is so in, when David writes this, the, he writes, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, says to my Lord, whoever David's Lord is, whoever this person is, God tells him to sit at his right hand. And that God would make his enemies to be under his feet, like a footstool, like the ottoman you have when you watch TV. Got my feet on top. I'm in charge. I've conquered them. And David says this could speak about nobody else but Jesus. That he is, he didn't ascend, when, when they watched him ascend, he didn't just ascend into the clouds or into the atmosphere or in, into the, to the sky. He ascended to the throne of God, to the right hand of the Father. And that's why he can then pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he, he says, therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is our Lord, Peter says. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he is also the Christ, the Savior. And he says, you crucified him. So at this point, they have a couple of options, don't they? The crowd, we don't know how big it is, but they could rush Peter and the disciples and they could kill him on the spot, couldn't they? That's one response. But that's not what we see. Because this is a pretty hard-hitting sermon. I mean, he was not... He was not uh, beating around the bush, was he? He was not saying, well, you know, some people crucified Jesus and some people did this. He points right at them and he says, the guilt is on you. What's their response going to be? When they heard this, without an invitation, without a now, if the Spirit is moving in your life and you're feeling touched by this sermon, I want you to come forward now. The person that, comes, that came with you, they can bring you forward. None of that. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Literally, the word cut means to be pierced through. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall... You can't pierce a hard heart. That's the hard part about it. When a heart is hard, the words just kind of ricochet off. But then God steps in and softens a heart. And, and thankfully, 3,000 people get saved as a result of this sermon. And their hearts were soft. And when they heard the words that Peter was saying, they knew he was right. And they knew something had to be done. And I love that. Good, that's what good preaching is, is about. And you'll say, well, maybe someday we'll hear some. Someday you will. And then you'll know. Oh, that's what was being talked about there. Good preaching is meant not just to entertain or make you la laugh. I mean, laughter is a great tool. Jokes illustrations, all of those are great tools. But they are all meant to move you. The, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.11 says, the words of the wise are like goads. A goad is that stick. It's a long pointed stick when an ox, you were trying to plow your field and the ox wouldn't go where you wanted him to. He was stubborn. He was going the wrong direction. You'd kind of poke him in the rear end with this big stick. You know, you kind of poke him and get him to move in the direction you wanted to. And the the more stubborn he was, the harder you had to poke him, right? And Solomon says the words of the wise are like goes. They poke people. Uh, you know, we say stepping on toes. But that's what I'm supposed to do. That's my job. It's not to step on your toes in a mean way or an awkward way. But I pray that, that when I preach from the word of God, that you are moved. You might leave having laughed at a joke or some 
silly thing I said or some foible I made or mistake I made. And that's all funny. But I pray that even as I'm talking now, that, that the Word of God is pricking your heart. And maybe some here not saved. And seeing the response, they ask as their hearts are being pierced by their own sinfulness. Don't you long to see that in the church, in people's lives? I mean, that's, people can leave. He didn't say, you know what, guys, to hear, what should we do? He doesn't say, go home and think about it. He could have said, well, you know what? There's no hope. You crucified Jesus, you're done. It's over. Forget it. God hates you. He didn't say that. What is the answer? He says to them, look at verse 38. He says to them, repent. Repent. You've got to change your mind. You've got to change the way you think about Jesus. Yes, I know what you did in the past. I know what you did to Jesus. We've agreed you've crucified the, the one God chose, and it's, but it's not over. You can repent. Metanoia, to change your mind, which changes your direction. You have to change what you think about Jesus and believe. And that's what he says to them. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. So there is hope. There's a lot of hope in Peter's sermon, but it starts with repentance. 3,000 people, they're going to be baptized right then. And I want to make this quick note before I move on and we finish up for the, for the morning. Some people have taken the, the construction of this sentence to mean that you have to be baptized to be saved because Peter basically says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so some say, well, see, Bible says you have to be baptized for or to produce or to accomplish the remission of your sins. And we talked about that a little bit during Mark 16. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. You can go and you can look this up on your own. When it says the word for there is the word ice in Greek, E-I-S, and it sometimes can mean to get or to acquire, but it can also mean because of or on the basis of. You use it that way when you say, you know, when I say to you, ah, I got a headache, and you say, well, take an aspirin for your headache. Now, you're not telling me to take an aspirin so that I can accomplish a headache, so that I can get a headache. You're telling me to take an aspirin because I already have a headache. And so what Peter is saying to them, repent, and be baptized because you have the remission or the forgiveness or the pardon of your sins. And that's proved over and over again in plenty of other verses from the thief on the cross to John 3.16, God so loved the world and gave his only begotten son that so that whoever believes on him and is baptized, no, it doesn't say that, does it? Whosoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. So just a little note, because you'll get people that say that to you now and again. Is baptism important? Absolutely it is. But notice again, the final thing, the promise is to you, to that group there, and to their children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. And guess what? We're in that afar off category. 2,000 years afar off. So was the pouring out of the Spirit, was this, these things that were happening, was that just for them, for that time, for that age, for that purpose, for that season? Somebody say no. Peter says no. It's for all of us, even those of us that are far off, to be filled with the Spirit, to live boldly as witnesses to Jesus, just as Peter's doing right here. Amen? Amen. We'll pick it up there next week with the results of those that got baptized, uh, or that got saved, they get baptized, and then what do they do next? That's the question. So if I can invite the praise team 
to come up. That would be wonderful.